Amen. Well, we'll do one of those, a little bit of history and uh, a little bit of uh, teaching. So, no sleeping at the beginning, that's the history part, okay? Because there will be a test. There's always a test. The book of uh, Zechariah is by far one of the most interesting books in the Old Testament. Really worth your time, uh, if you could and would. It takes place in the what's considered the post-exile period of uh, Jerusalem, of Israel. It's uh, those, that Persian time of uh, great historical importance. To, to get a grasp of what's going on in Zechariah, you, you almost have to juggle other books at the same time to get a full view of the historical events. In that case, you would want to read Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, and Zechariah. And almost in that uh, kind of order. But uh, um, Zechariah is considered by some to be the book of Revelation of the Old Testament. Because of all of the prophetic utterances that are there. Others simply call it the major prophet within the minor prophets. uh, Because it's such a broad book. And it covers so much within it. To get an idea of what's going on and why we are going to talk about this high priest Joshua, you kind of have to understand what's going on. Israel has purged its, uh, its sin for 70 years while in exile in Persia. First under Babylon and then Babylon having taken over, been taken over by the Medes and Persians, then under the Persians till the end. They are permitted to return to the land. Of course, that's always festivity, uh, considering they were at the, at the brink of extinction. Uh, the purpose is to rebuild the temple and the walls, to bring back the glory of Jerusalem. So that you know, a Persian king named Cyrus gave order that the temple in Jerusalem be built. Now that order went out in the year 538 before Christ. You'd have to go to the book of Ezra. Remember I said to you, if you kind of read these books together, you'll get a really good glimpse. But got to give you a few helps here. In the book of Ezra, chapter 3, we're told that the building has begun on the temple. Alright? That you have to understand there are two very important people, individuals in this whole story. There is a high priest named Joshua. And there is a governor. And his name is Zerubbabel. And they are individuals who you have to sort of get an idea of who they are as, they're, as you're going through this time in their history. In the book of Ezra, we discover, in the book of Ezra, we discover in chapter 4 that there's trouble in the land. And that trouble comes from the north, and it brings the building of, uh, the, the actual building to a, to a halt. And for 14 years... They just simply stop the reconstruction. 
They stopped in the year 534. 14 more years later, that puts it in 520, uh, they then begin to reconstruct again. They sort of pick up where they left off. They um, completed the temple in 516. Did you get all those dates? Because there will be a test. Are you with me? Now it's during this time, okay, that you, you sort of come into this book of Zechariah. Five months have gone into the building. You go to Haggai, and you learn the building began on the sixth month. Okay? Then you go to Zechariah, and you learn that Zechariah is called by God to be a prophet among his people in Jerusalem as they're doing the building five months after they've started. Now we are in the eleventh month. So, his job as a prophet is to, through visions, encourage the people to finish what they've started. To get on with the work. And in getting on with that work, there is a job that needs to take place. A spiritual refurbishing, if you would, that needs to take place, that God has to do in their hearts. And... Of these visions, there's eight of them, eight visions. The fourth one, which is the only one we're going to look at today, has to do with this um, high priest, uh, Joshua. So, the eighth vision, of the, uh, the, the fourth vision of these eight visions about Joshua. Joshua is before the throne of God in this vision, okay? And the vision was in preparation for what would be the cleansing of the people for the dedication of the work of God. You see, it's not just about getting the temple ready. There are the people that have to get ready. It's great to have the temple. It's great to have a functioning temple. But it is yet more important that the people be ready. So comes the vision that is shared by uh, Zechariah with us. So, the cleansing of one is a representation of the cleansing of all. Alright? I'll ask you a question here. What is it that Jesus ascended to do? We just finished Easter. We had a great Easter time. Uh, I kind of got a chance to redo it all over again up in Barcelona last week. Do you know why? Not that they have their dates wrong. It's that most Spanish churches in Catalonia, during Easter, they all go on holiday. Then they come back from their holiday and they redo Easter the Sunday after that. I, I know, it doesn't sound right, but... It's just, you know, they're just, that's what they do. They all go away on retreats, church retreats and all that, and then sort of come back and redo it all over again the next Sunday. And of course, I was preaching, so I had a chance to uh, sort of remind everybody about Easter all over again. So I was great. But what happened after that? And what is it that Jesus went to do? He went to do two things. John chapter 4 uh, 14 tells us. Remember, Jesus said, 
I go to my Father to prepare a place for... No, say me. Me, he went to prepare a place for you, so say me. He went to prepare a place for me. That's one of the things he went to do. The other is to be your advocate. There's an announcement, a commercial announcement on the radio, in Spanish radio, and there's some kind of a <coughs> um, uh, lawyer's chain of offices throughout all of Spain that for a mere 78 euros a year, they will represent you anytime, any place, anywhere. And I thought, 78 euros worth of representation might not get you a lot. That, that commercial never has encouraged me very much into ordering my own private uh, solicitor for 78 euros a year. Just not a lot of confidence in my mind behind something that only costs 78 euros. You have one. An eternal advocate. Forever. For free. And he does a great job. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The job that is being done by the Lord Jesus. And why. Okay? Uh, first point for today... Yeah, that was just the introduction, guys. So, you know, relax. There are nice, comfortable seats there. You know, don't be thinking already about the clock. We hit it. So you can't look at it. Number one. One for all. And all for one. That's what that vision is all about. Joshua, the high priest, is the bridge between God, Jehovah, and the people, the Jews. And Joshua represents the whole of the people at this moment, in this vision. In this, that uh, fourth vision of the eight, we established one single thing. There's one, there's one purpose to be established. How God sees the people. After 70 years of exile, because of their disobedience to their God. Point two. Oh, that might go a little faster than you thought. Number two. We have three people worth identifying. No, the advocate, the accused, and the accuser. The accused is Joshua. And he carries his sin and the sin of the people. Represented by a very stained dirty garment that's upon him. Then there is the advocate. Scripture here calls him the angel of the Lord. Now I'm not going to take all of the time needed perhaps to identify him directly, but it is what we call a Christophany. Now a Christophany means uh, appearing of Jesus before his birth. And in this case, this Christophany always seems to be identified as the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. So, we'll just simply identify him quickly as Christ in heaven, the advocate standing alongside of Joshua. And of course, 
the accuser. Always the accuser. May I just point out one brief thing here. At times we are needed to be reminded who the accuser is. And I can just simply say Satan. But I would leave then to you to interpret he to be what. And uh, may I remind you Satan is not the counterpart of God. He is not the, you know, heads and tail side of God. He isn't, God is the light, i.e. Satan must be the darkness, and forever these two equal powers will uh, go head to head. That's a very incorrect view of who Satan is. Satan is a fallen angel, who has chosen to wage war against the Holy One, but in no way, and in no case, is he an equal match. He is not the opposite of God. He is a created being, not eternal. The fact that he is created, then, he is no match to God. So the fact that he even exists must have a purpose. It isn't that he can hold his ground to a holy God. It is just simply that the holy God must have him for a reason. So we have an accuser, Satan. Revelations 12.10 calls him the accuser of... You know what? Why only the brethren? Why not the Baptist and, and the Lutheran and the Methodist? Why, why always the brethren? I knew he was going to say that. He is my accuser because I am a child of God. I have come to an understanding of who Jesus is. I have become a child of God through the forgiveness of the cross. And because of that mere fact, I have made an enemy. You know, there's times when you make enemies without even looking for them. Just be of a certain nationality, be in the wrong place, and that gives you enemies. Right? You know, during the 80s, and in the early 90s, to be a Colombian was no fun. Being Colombian meant you were somehow related or had something to do with the drug cartels. And it was everywhere I went, people would ask me about the drug cartels. As if, like I had insight. Guess what I did? I, made it, I took it upon myself to read up about it. You know, that was in the early t- days of internet and so on. And I began to kind of get, uh, try, try to get information on all these cartels and, 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 and um, the, uh, the, the, the paramilitaries. And, uh, yeah, it's a mess. It, it still kind of is a mess down there, but not as bad a mess. And because uh, I, you know, it was like, I looked ignorant every time people would ask me. I would say, oh no, I'm just Colombian. You know, that doesn't mean I know everything about the drug cartels. Ask me today, I think I actually got it to, I, I got quite a bit of history on that whole thing. But it's like you make enemies just because. Do you realize 
The day you bowed your knees to Jesus, you made an enemy. And his name is Satan. And from that point on, he became your accuser. And any time, any place, and any moment that he could, he will accuse your conscience of your imperfection. He will remind you, you're human. And he will try to take out from underneath you the mere fact that God has come upon your life and seen you through a different eye. He wants to always keep you on shifting sand so that you don't stand firm against him. The accuser of the brethren. Could it bring in any sense a memory to you of that book called Job? Remember Job? Poor Job. I mean, really. Talk about picking on a poor fellow. But there he is. You know? Family, property, servants, all gone down the tubes. All because they want, Satan just wanted to see what he would do. His wife told him what to do. Anybody remember what his wife told him to do? Curse God and die. He says, shall I only remember God during the good times? So, we know, you know, that there are moments in your life when you feel as though the weight is upon you because something wants to remind you of your imperfection. And at that moment in time, may you please remember that it is in Christ and in He alone And it is only through the banner of His love that you can stand before God the Father. Number three, there is a development. What is that development? Well, Joshua is dressed in filthy garments, as we pointed out. Uh, The filth is the representation of sin, sin from which they were sent into exile and now have completed. We'll see that in verse two. Uh, Excuse me, verse five, four. The defense attorney, uh, no, then the question of course is asked, how could a nation, i.e. a priest, so stained in sin, be able to once again, be able to enter into the service of Yahweh, at the temple, at the sacrifices? How could he be able to be restored to that? Well, number one, or A, the defense attorney requests a very simple, straightforward judgment from the magistrate. The defense attorney requests that the accuser, Satan, be judged and not the accused. In verse 2, there is a, there is a poetical play on words. Jehovah says, Yahweh says, May Yahweh judge you. How can you, you being who you are, be the one that say? But may I remind you that this is a vision. And may I remind you there is one who is reading, who is acting out the situation. And what Satan is being, or what is being asked of God the Father, is to judge the accuser. For it is he who has caused the people to stumble. The defense then recognizes that both the accused 
and the people that he represents are chosen of God. I know that sounds so simple. What does it mean in your heart? How does it play out on Monday morning? Chosen of God. Does that ring in your ear? Listen to what it says in the passage. That they, he, was a brand plucked from the fire. That being the captivity they were in, which brought that nation almost to the verge of destruction. Out of the miry pit, He plucked me and set my feet upon a rock. Christ, the stone. I mean, folks, I ask you again, what does your soul do within you when you are reminded again, chosen of God? It should rattle your cage. It should fill you with love for your Savior. It should empower you to do any and all things. Because one day, the Eternal One chose to look down upon a mortal as you, stained as you were, and chose you. Chosen. Of God. See, the verdict swift to the point. He is found innocent, Joshua. Joshua is found innocent, for which his garments are then ordered to be changed, and he is to be not seen as the accused, but as one who has been exonerated. He is to be dressed in festive raiments. Now even though his past sins were real, God decides to pardon, and what's more important, to restore the accused to the priesthood. I grew up very much dependent of the concept of priesthood. The Denomination in which I grew, you were you counted on and were dependent on the priesthood. Uh, I remember once asking my grandmother as a child, uh, grandma had all the religious answers at home, uh, about the Bible. She used to keep a large Bible, larger than this one, with of course those beautiful paintings that many of them have, uh, on a, one of our religious tables that she had. And she used to keep that Bible there. And one day I was just curious. I used to look at the picture. I didn't even know how to read. I, and I asked Grandma about the Bible. And I said, Grandma, when am I going to be able to read the Bible? Uh, and I think I asked her, why is it you don't read the Bible to us or something? And she says, oh no. No, we don't read the Bible. That's for the priests to read and to interpret. If you read the Bible, you'll go crazy. I, pre- I kid you not, that was my grandmother's answer to me. By the way, that's kind of... She didn't know Vatican II had taken place by then. The news took a long time to get to Colombia. 
that now you could read your Bible. But anyway, um, did I just lose myself? I did, didn't I? Somebody bring me back home because I'll start going down a rabbit trail here. Right. We depended on the priesthood. And of course, um, our family was very involved in the priesthood of our neighborhood. And I wish I could really explain to you, it might be really difficult for some of you even to conceive. First of all, our home was a two-story house, beautiful balcony, It was at the right corner. It was at an intersection of a main street and another one that came this way. And it sat tall. On top of that, my grandmother had in the house any and all artifact needed to hold a religious meeting, including a life-size Christ, humongous candlesticks, communion table, Tons of um, uh, images and so on. So what the priest would do a couple of three times a year when we would have our festivities of our neighborhood, which included a marathon, the parties, and you know, all that, he'd always give a religious meeting, and he would do it from our balcony. He'd come into our house, and he would prepare everything for the mass. All he would do was bring this, remember this black case. In it were the communion elements. That's all he had to do. Grandma supplied everything else. Guess what that made our house in the neighborhood? You know it. I mean, you know it. We were it. Because we were the house that got all the speakers put up on on the roof. All the big round, you know, those gray round ones, you know. You know, and the priest would do his religious meeting from our balcony. We had special insight into that whole religious thing. We depended on the priesthood. One of the things that so thrilled my soul after I became a believer was to read and understand I'm a priest. I have been made a priest. I can come boldly into the throne of grace. I am a representative of my Heavenly Father upon this earth. And I get to act as a bridge to those who don't know Christ. You know, you weren't chosen. Can we, can we cut the recording right now, please? To sit on your duff. You were chosen to serve. You were restored for service. Someone said to me a couple of weeks ago, an outsider, beautiful building. I knew this when it was a furniture shop. It actually looks like a church. My first thoughts were, I pray the people will act as church. You come. But may I remind you, this is just one event in your Christian walk. And it is an important event because we gather for Jesus' sake. 
We gather to sing to Jesus' name. We gather to honor God our Father. We gather to hear from the Spirit of God. But it is one event in a week's worth of time. Pluck that of the fire for service. To be priests among a world desperately in need of knowing about the Lord Jesus. Well, there is a proper attire that is given to the priest. There is a turban placed upon his head. It uh, could signify actually quite a few things. There's the idea of head covering, which means he is in line or under submission to Yahweh. There is the fact also that it proclaims honor. There is definitely the qualified um, the qualification of expiation that he has been cleansed and made holy. For on the turban of the high priest, there was a brand that said, um, Holy to the Lord. That was the one object on him that identified him as a high priest. Because he wasn't dressed in priestly garments from there down. It was festive garments. And it talks nothing about priestly garments. But the turban would have perhaps had holiness to the Lord. Then there's the festive raiments. And of course that gives way to an awful lot of possibilities. Could be the representation of the righteousness. Of which he was now bestowed upon. Revelation 3 verse 4, uh, Revelation 7 verse 9 talks about the white garments that represent those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. But they are festive. Most likely, I agree with uh, what uh, <coughs> commentators, uh, German commentators, Lutheran um, German commentators, Colin Dalich of the Old Testament, what they say that um, most likely are symbolic of glory. Of the glory. Sanctified and glorified. Can I read to you, would you just allow me to read to you two verses? If you don't have them underlined in your Bible, you really need to. Romans Chapter 8. Please follow me to Romans chapter 8. We're just going to read two verses. Romans chapter 8, verses 30 and 31. 30 and 31. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. That, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Vested with the justice, the justification, and the glorification of God. Forgiven, 
restored with glory for the purpose of service. There is a personal and collective reprimand. And it is okay for us to understand that God is simply saying, I have done a part. I have done my part. In verse 7, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will. If you will walk in my ways, and perform my service, then you will. And uh, we'll simply summarize it as, be free to walk in the light of God. When we give ourselves to the service of God, to the ways of God, then we're able to freely walk in the light of God without any condemnation upon us. God asks us, simply walk and serve, and I will. Well, we need to bring this to a close. We're on point number four. Jesus, your high priest. Perhaps it would be best if I just let Scripture do the talking. So, would you just again uh, bear with me and follow me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to read just a few passages. We'll begin in chapter 4. Read a few verses into chapter 5. Then chapter 8, read a few verses and then jump to chapter 9. So we'll do a little bit of reading here. I always encourage you to bring your Bible. We tend to use it around here. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus, your high priest, may I again remind you, perhaps introduce you to one of his offices, our high priest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be sympathized with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. 16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Verse five, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Would you jump to chapter 8, please? Verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the magistrate in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which is the Lord's pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Well, 
chapter 9, please. In verse 14. Something to offer. 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse yourselves, your conscience from dead works, to, may I underline, serve the living God. And the last verse, 22. And according to the law, one may also say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Our high priest offered that blood. So that we can be free to serve. May I conclude with one thought. Only Jesus can restore you before God the Father. Perhaps this morning, the first thought that comes to your mind is gratitude, thankfulness, for having been plucked out of the fire, for having been chosen, for having been placed in the service of the King. But maybe, maybe this is all news to you. Maybe you're just now beginning to understand why the cross, why the ascension. Jesus can restore you. I wish I could take the time to just point out one thought. They were filthy garments. And if we would just have a candid conversation in our group, I'm sure we would all speak of how filthy the garments were. And what it was that stained them. Certainly mine were filthy. Certainly mine were stained. But one day, by His grace, through His mercy, He changed my garments. And to that, we simply say hallelujah. And if you haven't the assurance that God has cleansed you, that He has removed the filthy garments, all you would to do is to beg for mercy from your Heavenly Father. For, from Him who created you in His image. Him who chose to die for you out of love. If you would but just say to him, Heavenly Father, please forgive me for my sins. Please, remove these filthy garments. And would you grant me clean garments? You can just bow your head and in the inside of your heart, just cry out to God for mercy. The Bible says that a repentive, contrite heart, he will not push away. He will not ignore. He will not reject. God said to us, seek me and you will find me.
if you seek me with all of your heart. And it is in that place of your heart that you can make peace with God. And if you have asked God, even today for the very first time, to to cleanse you, to take away the dirty garments, to give you a new clean garment, then in your heart just simply say, thank you. Thank you, dear God, for having given me an advocate, one who has defended me before you. Joshua, being a high priest, was indeed in need of being cleansed from his sin, in need of finding forgiveness. In need of being restored. I trust that there is nothing that stands in your way of service to your King. Let us pray.